a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Hey, I want to thank our sponsors who make this program possible. They include the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, and I also want to thank Jeff Staples Realty. Jeff is with the ERA Brokers Consolidated. And if look, if you are in the market right now, if you're trying to buy or sell a home, you already know it is a fast-paced housing market. Some would say the market is on fire, but there's been so many fires this year, that may not be a popular way to say it. Nonetheless, if you are looking to buy a home, if you're looking to sell a home, particularly if you are in my home state of Utah, anywhere in the state, I would urge you to get a hold of Jeff and call him for a no-pressure consultation. Now, I'm going to give the number here, but it's probably easiest if you just go to the show notes, thebrianhydeshow.com. Today is uh, Monday, the 28th of September. Right at the bottom of the uh, show notes, you'll find a link for each of my sponsors, and you can find Jeff's number there. His number is 435-619-0189. Look, Jeff is the guy you want to talk to if you're interested in selling for more or buying for less. Jeff Staples Realty. Make sure you talk to him and uh, see what it's uh, see see what it looks like. My wife and I are looking around. We've we've been renting for the last couple of years, and and, and we're starting to get to the point where it's like, okay, maybe it's time to start uh, looking for a home. And the market's moving fast. <laughs> it's crazy. I probably need to have Jeff come on one of these days and, and talk a little bit about what's what's taking place. Nonetheless, we've got a lot ahead of us today. Um, if you haven't heard, I'm just going to toot the horn here a little bit. Um, thank you to those Utah state legislators who are stepping up to end Utah's state of emergency. Kim Coleman posted this on Facebook uh, a couple of days ago. She said, you asked, here it is. And I'm signing it because I swore an oath to defend the constitutions of the United States and the state of Utah. And it's the right thing to do. And it's a joint resolution to end the emergency declaration. There, now, there's a link to this, and I actually have this in the show notes today. So you can check this out for yourself. Among the things it says, whereas the Utah Constitution establishes that the legislative authority of the state is vested in the legislative branch of government. And when the governor acts under a state of emergency... The citizens of the state of Utah lose their voice through their elected officials in the state. Now, there's more to it, but essentially it would end the state of emergency that Governor Gary Herbert, as a lame duck, has kept on extending, that uh, his uh, heir apparent, Spencer Cox, appears more than willing to keep continuing, not stopping to recognize the fact that, guys, it's not power that was yours in the first place. Sorry, that doesn't mean we're denying the science or denying a pandemic. That just means it's, it's not yours to exercise. And there are some other costs that go along with that as well. We'll talk about that in a moment. What Kim Coleman says is the resolution isn't a statement on whether we should be under an emergency declaration. Rather that after 30 days, the law requires the legislature to act. And that hasn't been the case for two extensions of this declaration. So right now they're trying to get 38 House representatives and 15 senators to enact it. I'm very happy to say that uh, my representative, Corey Malloy, is, uh, is one of those who has signed on to it. 
If you are within the sound of my voice and you live within the state of Utah and you want to see this emergency declaration rescinded, you've got to get in touch with your representatives and do it sooner than later. Especially need to lean on some of those senators. Now, let's talk about uh, a little something that took place over the weekend. Robin Openshaw, many of you will know her as the Green Smoothie Girl, did a marvelous job of calling out Spencer Cox about his Utah Leads Together programmed destruction of small businesses and the economy and schools. And she actually showed up at a cottage meeting where apparently Spencer Cox was afraid to show up, but he was on the phone and on a speaker taking questions, and they allowed her to, to pose some questions. Robin says the man is, this man is too cowardly to show up at the candidate cottage meeting he'd committed to be at, so he used his no-show to propagandize the scandemic, saying he's scared of the COVID spike that he created by pushing healthy people in Utah to get tested so he and his corrupt boss could keep lying to the Utah people about the non-emergency. She says, I hope Utah wakes up and figures out that this man who ran on a platform of limited government is the reason we are all under the socialist thumb of corrupt government now. She says, listen to him tell us he's a conservative Republican. Socialism is when the government dictates all the terms of commerce. That's not a bad definition, by the way. She says, we are there, folks, and this is the man who created the green, yellow, orange, red socialist takeover. This man, meaning Spencer Cox, empowered the health departments to go out and shut down 15% of our jobs. Utah businesses are teetering on bankruptcy. She says, listen to your next governor, deny it, and talk about how great everything is. And I will have a link to this in the show notes. It's a video that she posted on Facebook. And at the same time, Spencer Cox is refusing to talk to his constituents because 0.00013% of Utah, all elderly, have died of the virus. And she says, remember, 1% of us die every year. So if you want to hear political doublespeak, I would encourage you, you, you'll hear Spencer Cox engage in that. And not only is she standing up to him, but there's actually uh, an event taking place uh, coming up this Saturday. No, this Friday, 6 p.m. This will be the Utah County Freedom Rally, 6 p.m. at the Provo Historic Courthouse at 51 South University Avenue in Provo. Now, look, this is not, you know, bring your pitchforks and torches and come as angry as you can possibly be. Drink some caffeine if you can beforehand. You're going to need it. That's not the point. That's not what they're asking. The Utah Business Revival, Take Action for Freedom, and Your Health Freedom have all partnered to bring this uh, meeting about. They're asking that you come expecting inspiring, uplifting, motivational music, speakers, prayers. You know, I just, I don't know of a, I, I can't think of a way to say it without, you know, getting kind of blunt and maybe even sounding a little bit, uh, how can I put this, excited, you know? Like, does he have tinfoil on his head or what? But I think we are at a crossroads here. And not many people want to admit it. Even those who recognize it are loath to admit it, myself included. I think we're standing at a crossroads where we are being given a choice. How seriously do you take your freedoms? Are you willing to assert them when it may make you unpopular in the eyes of some? 
when it may make you appear to be why you're just selfish and ungovernable because you're not following these mandates that uh, that the governor has put forth or that the health department is, is putting forth or that your county commissioners snuck into being in the middle of the night. Okay, early evening, but nonetheless, they did it in a very sneaky way. The bottom line is, do you understand that political arrangements exist for your benefit and my benefit, for the benefit of the people, the citizens, not for the benefit of the politicians, not for the benefit of the authorities? Oh, they get all puffed up and try to tell us, no, it's, this is all about we're just doing this for you. But they're not. They haven't missed a paycheck. They won't miss a paycheck. They can't miss a paycheck. Why? Because their paychecks are being pilfered directly from the taxpayers. They have a captive source of income and an extractive industry that will come to your house armed with guns if you refuse to pay. Doesn't get much better than that. It's pretty hard to fail under that business model. And if I sound just a little bit bitter about it, it's because I am. These are the people who are strangling the livelihoods of a great many people who are not at risk from the coronavirus. And they're fudging the facts and they're they're playing up the cases or the number of positive tests as if well, every single one of these represents another person hooked to a ventilator, lying there face down with their life slowly seeping away. And it's not true. The hospitals are not overwhelmed. Deaths are not spiking. There are people who are sick and there are people who are dying of either covid or covid related complications. But you've got people making a power grab, people who are supposed to be serving the public's interests. And they are too proud to admit they don't know what they're doing. They're too proud to admit that their authority is finite in the sense that a virus will not obey them. They want that power. And it's 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 about time. It's way past time, actually, that the legislature step up and clip the wings of this governor and the soon-to-be governor. I'm assuming that Spencer Cox is probably likely to win. You and I have a stake in this matter. This is not the time to shrink from it because it might make you unpopular. All right, I'm going to hop off the soapbox. I've got some other fun stuff to talk about. No, really, fun stuff coming up. Paul Rosenberg, in his latest essay on Freeman's Perspective has a really great take on what the year 2020 has revealed to us about the nature, the real nature of the systems that are trying to to rule us. We'll be back with that after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, 801-331-8113. I know this has been a very interesting year. It's been a trying year for for just about all of us. You know, somebody asked me uh, the other day, they said, "Would you could you say something positive about 2020? And it was interesting to read some of the answers, you know, because some of them were kind of telling the cheek, well, at least it's three quarters over. <laughs> and I, I agree with that. Um, it's been a tough year. It's been very difficult for me, possibly one of the most difficult that I can remember. Um, I know I'm not alone. I think every one of us has felt 
the the abrupt shift in everything we thought was normal, everything we thought was set in stone that somehow wasn't. That was kind of crazy. But my answer in looking back was, yes, 2020, in spite of all the, the difficulties that have come up this year, also will be forever cemented in my memory as the year in which some of the greatest blessings of my life were realized. I won't go into a lot of detail. Yeah, it has a lot to do with um, being able to establish contact with my biological parents. That has been um, that's been a remarkable experience. And with that, I've I have some half siblings that uh, I also have established contact with. And here's the kicker. They're all wonderful people. So as, as rotten as 2020 has been, it will still always be a banner year in my mind just for that purpose. If that sounds too Pollyanna-ish, I, I don't know what to say. I am trying to look on the bright side, but all things considered, there were some things for which I can really be grateful. And I hope that you, you know, as you're looking back over this year, we'll, we'll find some reasons to be grateful as well. If nothing else, maybe you found that you were capable of handling more difficulty or harder things than you thought you were capable of. This has been a year for growth, I think, for a lot of us. And I can't remember very many times in my life where one of those growth experiences was taking place where I looked around and said, hey, <laughs> this is kind of fun. In fact, just about every time, I'm pretty sure it sucked. Every single time. It was only afterwards that you look at it and go, as hard as that was, I'm glad I went through it. I could not be who I am today if that hadn't happened. I want to share with you an essay from Paul Rosenberg. And I want to encourage you before I share this, if you haven't visited freemansperspective.com, that's, that's his website. And I'm sad to tell you, he has put a lot of the website behind a paywall now. You've got to be a subscriber. And I don't blame him. This is, this is not, well, Paul must be getting greedy. Um, the man's work is remarkable. And he draws from a lifetime of very deep experience in the things that he writes about. Um, the man is very brilliant on th matters like cryptocurrency. He's just got a good slant on life, too. And you can have his commentaries delivered to your email. And so you can read them in your email. But if you go to his website, it's going to say this part is for subscribers only. Just subscribe to the email. Seriously. You'll be glad you did. Freemansperspective.com. Once, maybe a couple times a week, you'll get something in your inbox, and it's always thought-provoking, always worth reading. This one that showed up today is titled 2020, The Year the System Showed Its Real Face. I know. <laughs> yep, we've learned a lot, haven't we? Paul says, as we grew up, nearly all of us were inundated with stories of our glorious national fathers, our beautiful democracies, and so on. And being young, we, for the most part, believed them. The system gave us our prosperity, our comfort, our medicine, our sense of importance. He says, soon enough, we learned that the system was also stupid and perverse, but we found a way around that contradiction by blaming one segment of the system or another. The blues or the greens or the red are the problem. It could not, must not be that the system itself is the problem. Then came 2020 and the system revealed its true face. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I suppose I should be fair and add that the system wasn't always as rotten as it is now. But regardless, it wasn't able to prevent the rot that overtook it. So here is 2020 in a nasty little nutshell. He says the system would like everything to accept the daily outrages, one for the blues, one for the reds, to go down the memory hole. 
So he says it's important to recap the revelations of 2020. These are some of the things we learned. The system decreed who could work and who couldn't. This was not done democratically. It was done by edict. Democracy did nothing to stop it. People were arrested for going to church or synagogue. This was the real disgrace of the police forces. He asks, are there any orders from their paymasters they won't enforce upon us? Political gangs roam the streets, beating, threatening, and burning. And he says, make no mistake, these are covertly authorized political gangs serving political ends. This vile tactic goes back to ancient Rome, at least, where gangs of thugs beat opponents in the streets. Science said one thing, then the opposite, supporting whatever power wanted. Not every scientist, but more or less the entire grant-seeking, position-seeking complex showed themselves to be without integrity. They said and did whatever power wanted them to do. Mass media was as a fear delivery system. They were devoted to capturing eyeballs with fear and monetizing outrage. Journalistic integrity was a joke at best. Social media silenced thousands of dissenters purely at the behest of political power. Now, Paul Rosenberg points out this was no less that the suppression of speech, no less than the suppression of speech, rather. He says, if you want to profit from becoming the public square, you have to act like the public square. Free services have always been parasites, but these have shown themselves to be sycophantic to the point of fascism. The mandatory school system around which millions of families had arranged their lives was ripped away in an instant. Hate was legitimized. Political loudmouths and televised faces have joined hate as the voice of justice instead of the disease it is. He says millions have joined in the barbarity, pretending that hate is actually duty, honor, and truth. Now, he says more could be added, but this is quite enough to make my point. The system is not what we were taught it was. And 2020 has revealed that quite well. Now, his next point is the one that's going to make you stop and scratch your head because he says the system doesn't deserve us. And he says by referring to the system and us, I'm dividing the world into two parts. And I should be clear on what those parts are. Us refers to producers. The people who grow food, transport it, process it, build machines, provide medical care, and so on. Everyone from the construction worker to the small business owner to the cleaning lady is a producer and deserve great respect for what they do. We all owe all the, we owe all the comforts of our lives and frequently our lives together to these people. The system refers to the entire governmental complex that takes our money and couldn't survive without it. It also includes everything that couldn't be what they are without them. Central banks, government school systems, businesses that live on government connections, television networks, social media behemoths, and more or less everything high and mighty. He says, what I'd like is for the producers of the world to become clear on the fact that we don't need them. Everything they do for us is done with our money, which they take from us by force and fraud. Now, let's be honest about this. The system is a violent, corrupt, and control-obsessed entity. Millions of us would choose other arrangements if we could, but the system forbids them, forcibly. And he says we should also understand that this has happened before. Here, to illustrate as a passage from historian C. Delisle Burns on the real reason Rome collapsed. Quote, Great numbers of men and women were unwilling to make the effort required for the maintenance of the old order not because they were not good enough to fulfill their civic duties, but because they were too good 
to be satisfied with a system from which so few derived benefit, end quote. So Paul Rosenberg concludes the system is not worthy of our labor and treasure. Whether or not it once was, and if so, when, no longer matters. 2020 has made this much clear. It's time to drop our child training and look at the world like the adults we've become. That's pretty direct, right? I don't know if that kind of rocks you back in your seat like it did me. But I want to pose a question. I would really love to get your take on this. So if the system is trying to rule us, not for our interest, but for its own, what are the alternatives? The system doesn't want to let us exercise those alternatives, but but I'm going to anyway. What do you think we ought to do? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. I want to mention Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. If you uh, live in or around the uh, Wasatch Front area, you should check out Nikki's Warehouse in Salt Lake City. It's a wholesale food supplier. Actually, my friend Paul Stoddard gets his his uh, groceries, and we're talking produce, we're talking meats, we're talking uh, restaurant items. He gets them from various food wholesalers and passes them on at a remarkable savings to you. And I'm, I'm specifically speaking to those who are trying to stretch your grocery budget. Look, times are tough, and I think uh, there's a very good chance that uh, economically things could become even tougher. So I think it's very wise if you have the opportunity to, to stretch those dollars, make it count. Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse does exactly that, and they are, I, I'm not going to say they're easy to find, because uh, frankly, it takes a little bit to find them. They're, it's not like it's impossible, but I would recommend go to their uh, Facebook page, and, and you can check them out, and they will, uh, they will, they'll be easy enough to find from the directions there. Just know, they accept EBT, they accept checks, cash, and nearly every credit card. Their food is purchased from a local food distribution company, and they really have the lowest prices that you're going to find anywhere on produce and grocery items. And, and the best part of all, everything they sell is 100% guaranteed or your money back. The walk-in freezer has stuff that, uh, you know, you'd feel really good knowing that your freezer is well-stocked and you can get at a very great deal. Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, when you're making the purchase, as you hand them your card, as you hand them the money, say, you know, I came in here because I heard Brian talking about you guys. Let them know their advertising message reached your ears. So I don't know if you saw the fireworks over the weekend. Um, and I know the, in the news at the bottom of the hour, they were just talking about Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert. By what metric? Oh, that's right, because uh, some political appointees, uh, you know, said this is the guy we have in charge. By the way, that doesn't mean he knows more than anybody else. He just is a figurehead for a particular bureaucratic position. I'm sorry, that doesn't mean I know more than him. I'm just pointing out this man is not made of finer clay than the rest of us. And his understanding does not necessarily surpass that of the entire medical community because of his earthly title. And if you saw, sparks flew on Capitol Hill this week when Senator Rand Paul questioned Fauci over the doctor's praise of New York's COVID-19 response. 
John Miltimore has an excellent article. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. And he points out during a Senate committee hearing, the Kentucky senator asked Dr. Fauci how he could laud New York's lockdown policies when the Empire State has the highest death rate in the world. Paul said in his opening statement, to those who argue that the lockdown flattened the curve in New York and New Jersey, the evidence argues otherwise. New York and New Jersey wound up with the sharpest spike or highest death rate in the world at over 1,700 deaths per million. New York's results were a sharp contrast to other nations, including Sweden, which had a death rate of about one-third that of New York, despite having few government mandates and mostly voluntary guidelines. So Senator Paul said, you've lauded New York for their policy. New York had the highest death rate in the world. How can we possibly be jumping up and down and say, oh, Governor Cuomo, you did a great job. He had the worst death rate in the world. Now, Fauci admitted that New York had, quote, made mistakes, likely a reference to Cuomo's order that effectively forced nursing homes to admit COVID-19 carrying residents released from hospitals. But he said Paul was mischaracterizing the facts. Fauci said, Quote, you misconstrued that, Senator, and you've done that repeatedly in the past. New York got hit very badly. They've made some mistakes. Now, he added that New York's most recent success or more recent success is the result of effective implementation of the White House Coronavirus Task Force recommendations, including frequent hand washing, social distancing and use of face masks. Now, John Miltimore says it's unclear which point Fauci was alluding to when he said Paul was misconstruing the record, but he says Paul was correct on at least two points. First of all, Paul's figures are accurate. New Jersey and New York do have higher COVID-19 death rates than any single nation in the world, with 1,825 deaths per million and 1,707 deaths per million, respectively. Additionally, New York's death rate is about three times that of Sweden at 581 per million. Now, if one dislikes the comparison between New York and Sweden, other measures are equally bleak for New York. Data from The Economist and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that New York City has the most excess COVID-19 deaths in the entire world. This is something that data analyst Justin Hart pointed out on Twitter. Now, John Miltimore says, to be fair... If Fauci, it's unclear if Fauci was actually questioning Paul's figures. One might suspect that Fauci was challenging Paul's assertion that Fauci had praised New York as a lockdown model. However, in July, Fauci did cite New York as an example of an effective government response to COVID-19. He told uh, G- PBS's news, PBS NewsHour's Judy Woodruff in an interview published on July 17th, quote, We know that when you do it properly, you bring down those cases. We have done it. We have done it in New York. New York got hit worse than any place in the world, and they did it correctly by doing the things that you're talking about, end quote. Now, the quote makes it clear that Fauci isn't praising New York for its high death toll, but for the decrease in COVID-19 cases. Now, there's no question New York's COVID-19 numbers have fallen precipitously, Much like Sweden, the Empire State has not experienced a second wave, while many other parts of the world have. States like California, Florida, and Michigan, as well as countries like France, Spain, and Italy. The question is why? And John Miltimore says the truth is we really don't know. In his exchange with Paul Fauci attempts to take credit for the drop in cases in New York, saying that New Yorkers are now heeding the task force guidelines, washing hands, using masks, social distancing, spending more time outdoors. Paul, on the other hand, suggested that places like Sweden and New York have seen their numbers flatline because they've reached a certain level of herd immunity. Now, that's an idea that Fauci rejected out of hand. Are the numbers in Sweden and New York a reflection of the virus running its course 
or the effective management of government officials? John Miltimore says those are tough questions to answer, especially for those of us who are mere economists and not epidemiologists or virologists. But economics can help us understand behavior and incentives. And he says one would be naive to assume that Dr. Fauci has no incentive to proclaim that the government's COVID-19 lockdowns have been effective. After all, the toll of the lockdowns, historic economic destruction, psychological deterioration and vast loss of life has been immense. Fauci, the leader of the nation's COVID-19 response team, has an incentive to show this destruction has not been in vain. New York offered such an opportunity. The Empire State may have had one of the highest COVID-19 death rates in the world, but its reversal in cases allows Fauci to turn a tragedy into a success story. New York's change of fortune is the result of the plan, Fauci's plan. In a sense, as Paul pointed out, the pandemic has forced Americans to answer a difficult question. Is man really capable of altering the course of an infectious disease through crowd control? And for Paul, the answer is clear. The, the statistics answer a resounding no, Paul said. The evidence argues mitigation efforts have failed to flatten the curve, that most countries, regardless of public health policy, suffered a significant spike in deaths, then a gradual decline. So in a sense, Fauci and Paul are not just arguing over COVID-19 data. They're arguing about something much longer, much larger, rather. Many decades ago, the great economist Ludwig von Mises argued that a great deal of the struggle in society is over a simple question. Who gets to design the world? Individuals or authorities? Mises, like his mentee F.A. Hayek, believed central planners were a threat to society because they sought to enforce their own plan over those of individuals. Mises wrote in Socialism and Economic and Sociological Analysis, what those calling themselves planners advocate is not the substitution of planned action for letting things go. It is the substitution of the planner's own plan for the plans of his fellow men. The planner is a potential dictator who wants to provide, who deprive rather all other people of the power to plan and act according to their own plans, end quote. Now, John Miltimore says it would be easier to dismiss Mises' portrayal of the central planner as a potential dictator if America had not just endured two seasons of state-enforced lockdowns for their own good that resulted in 40 million job losses and a 33% annual drop in GDP as millions of Americans were effectively placed under house arrest. The figures are shocking, but he says they're even more jarring if we discover the lockdowns were all for naught. Yet Mises suggests we should not expect central planners to acknowledge a mistake, whatever the results. The central planner aims at only one thing, the exclusive, absolute preeminence of his own plan, Mises wrote. Many people might wonder how the state with the highest COVID-19 death rate in the world became a success story of the pandemic. But John Miltimore says Ludwig von Mises would not be in the least surprised. All right, when we come back, we are going to talk about why so much of the science on which these lockdowns have been predicated is wrong, false, puffed, or misleading. Now, you know, of course, this is one of the big dividing lines, right? Well, you're just denying the science. You don't believe in science. Well, I follow the science. Politicians are milking this one for all it's worth. So we're going to share with you an article from Joachim Book. Why is science wrong so much of the time? I can tell you right now, anytime it combines with power, the chances of it being wrong and clinging to that wronghood, yeah, it goes up.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 if you feel like you need to sound off. You know, I really don't like to, to make time to watch, oh, I don't know, presidential debates, but I don't know that I'm going to be watching the presidential debate tomorrow night, but can I just tell you what I am going to be doing? I'm going to be monitoring my Twitter feed, and I'm going to be watching very closely to see what uh, James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies have to say about, uh, about the debate. Now, there's usually quite a f- fair amount of wit and wisdom in what uh, these gentlemen have to say about uh, what's going on. But they also have some pretty serious uh, credentials in terms of uh, their ability to look at and analyze and, and give you a fair shake of what's going on. I just happen to like the fact that they also do it with great aplomb and humor. So rather than watching the uh, the debate itself, I'll probably just watch my Twitter feed and uh, and that should be good enough. We'll definitely have some things to talk about on Wednesday. For sure. By the way, our program brought to you in part today by our friends at the uh, at the Staples Turner team at uh, Patriot Home Mortgage. That would be my friend John Staples and his wife, Heather. They are part of an organization that started very small in little old St. George, Utah. And now Patriot Mortgage has offices operating in 23 different states. Bottom line is they have serious reach, serious resources, and a lot of experience and clout to bring to bear for you when you're trying to secure a home mortgage. You want to get pre-qualified before you go house shopping? These are the folks you want to talk to. You want to refinance your existing mortgage? Talk to my friend. John Staples. You can go to staplesmortgage.com. That'll direct you right to his website. Again, staplesmortgage.com. That's the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And we do appreciate them being a sponsor of The Brian Hyde Show. So I don't know if you've run into this argument uh, with uh, the scientific types versus the science deniers. You know, if you don't agree with a particular topic, it used to be this way with, um, with climate change. I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, if if you didn't toe the line and say, oh, yes, we're destroying the planet. And if we don't start taxing people right away, well, we're never going to get this thing reversed. And if you if you, you know, showed any hesitation, those who are, you know, true believers in the religion of science uh, or in the religion. Sorry. <laughs> no, I guess I'll, I'll let that stand. Let the record let that stand. That was a Freudian slip that needs to stay. People who are believers in that uh, scientician religion. They they take great offense. You're a heretic. How could you not believe this? Don't you believe the science? Well, there's a great article on intellectualtakeout.org today from Joachim Book. Why so much science is wrong, false, puffed, or misleading. And he says, you know, in a year where scientists seem to have gotten everything wrong, a book attempting to explain why is bizarrely relevant. Of course, science was in deep trouble long before the pandemic began, and Stuart Ritchie's excellent science fictions, how fraud, bias, negligence, and hype undermine the search for truth, had been long in the making. Much welcome, nonetheless, and various important. Now, Joaquin Book says, for a contrarian like him, reading Ritchie is good for his mental sanity, but bad for his intellectual integrity. He said, it fuels my priors that a lot of people, even experts, delude themselves into thinking they know things they actually don't. Fantastic scientific results, either the kind blasted across the headlines or those which gradually make it into public awareness, 
are often so poorly made that the results don't hold up. They don't capture anything real about the world. He says the book is a wake-up call for scientific establishment, often too blinded by its own erudite proclamations. Filled with examples and accessible explanations, Ritchie expertly leads the the reader on a journey through science's many troubles. And he categorizes them by the four subtitles of the book, Fraud, Bias, Negligence, and Hype. Together, they all undermine the search for truth that is science's raison d'etre. I'm saying it wrong, but uh, reason for living. It's not that scientists willfully lie, cheat, or deceive, even though that happens uncomfortably often, even in the best of journals, but rather that poorly designed experiments or underpowered studies, spreadsheet errors, or intentionally or unintentionally manipulated p-values yield results that are often too good to be true. Since academics' careers depend on publishing novel, fascinating, and significant results, most of them don't look a gift horse in the mouth. If the statistical software says significant, they confidently write up the study and persuasively argue their amazing case before a top-ranked journal, its editors, and the slacking peers in the field who are supposed to police their mistakes. Now, Ritchie isn't some crackpot science denier or conspiracy theorist working out of his mom's basement. He's a celebrated psychologist at King's College London with lots of experience in debunking poorly made research, particularly in his own field of psychology. For the last decade or more, this discipline has been the unfortunate poster child for the replication crisis, the discovery that, to use Stanford's John Ioannidis' well-known article title, most published research findings are false. Take the example of former Cornell psychology professor Daryl Bem and his infamous psychic pornography experiment that opens Ritchie's book. On screens, a thousand undergraduates were shown two curtains, only one of which hid an image which the students were supposed to find. The choice was a coin toss as they had no other information to go on. As expected, for most kinds of images, they picked the right curtain about 50% of the time. But, and here was was Bem's claim to fame, when pornographic images hid behind the curtains, students chose the right one 53% of the time, enough to pass for statistical significance in his sample. The road for top-ranked publication was wide open. Now, when the article came out after passing peer review... The world was stunned to learn that undergrads could see the future, at least when images of a sexual nature were involved. Proven by science, certified by the scientific method, the psychology world was thrown into chaos. The study was done properly, passed peer review, and published in a top field journal with the same method that underlies all the other well-known results in the field. Still, the result was totally bonkers. What had gone wrong? Or take the dawn of behavioral economics, Daniel Kahneman, whose many quirky experiments convinced an entire economics profession of of individual irrationality and ultimately earned him the Nobel Prize. The psychological literature on so-called priming, part of which is used by behavioral economists, suggested that tiny changes in settings can produce remarkably large impacts in behavior. For instance, subtly reminding people of money through the symbols of the clicking of coins makes them behave more individualistically and less caring of others. Disbelief is not an option, wrote Kahneman in his famous bestseller, Thinking, Fast and Slow. You have no choice but to accept that the major conclusions of these priming studies are true. Starting in the 2010s, psychologists tried to replicate these famous results and more. When they tried elsewhere with other students, better equipment or larger samples, or sometimes with the exact same data, the same results wouldn't emerge. How odd! 
Lab teams tried to replicate many established findings, coming up way short. The replication crisis seems, wrote Ritchie, with a snap of its fingers, to have wiped about half of all psychology research off the map. There was something structurally wrong in the way that psychology found and displayed knowledge. <sighs> Some research. Chance encounters like Bem's supernatural students sometimes make it through into published literature. But more disheartening are the actual instances of fraud where scientists forge their data, manipulate them, or simply make them up out of thin air. Ritchie's many stories can make you lose faith in a scientific establishment. Scientists inventing spreadsheets caught only because humans are very bad at creating true randomness. Tilting microscope pictures sideways, reusing the same numbers while pretending they were another data set. Now, while everybody agrees fraud is a problem, and the challenge is to prevent it or detect it before it causes too much damage, other flaws like bias, negligence, and hype are more widespread and more damaging because of it. And what's fascinating in Ritchie's book are the discussions of many studies, claims, and experiments with which even non-experts are familiar. Well-referenced and comprehensively cited, Ritchie reports huge problems with the following hyped stories. How many of these sound familiar? Larger plates make you eat more. Going to the supermarket hungry makes you buy more calories. Eggs cause cardiovascular disease. In messy or dirty environments, people display more racial stereotypes. Power posing by manspreading or placing your hands aggressively on your hips creates a psychological and hormonal boost that correlates with higher risk tolerance and better life outcomes. Now, Philip Zambardo's Stanford Prism experiment, experiment and the Inhuman Cruelty by People in Authority, debunked perhaps most effectively by Gina Perry's many in-depth writings on famous psychology experiments. Or sleeping less than six hours a night demolishes your immune system, doubling your risk of cancer, cancer rather, as a best-selling book, Why We Sleep, like by, by, Michael Wa by Matthew Walker. That's what that book claimed. All right, I'm going to be out of time here. All of them were wrong, though. That's what you need to know. Every one of these much-publicized and discussed claims include at least one of the following misleading conclusions not warranted by the research itself, fabricated data, data manhandled to pass significant tests, incompetent experimental designs, or experiments that wouldn't replicate when tried by other scientists. So have a little bit of skepticism. It's actually a healthy thing. But best of all, train yourself to think, to weigh, and to measure. Learn how to ask the right questions, and you'll find the truth. This is The Brian Hyde Show.